to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock directed thriller North by Northwest. I am but mad north northwest when the wind is southerly. I know a hawk in my hands. One minute of screen time per episode. Here's your host for Minute 18, Professor Robert E.G. Black of Annihilation Minute. Be always drunken. Nothing else matters. That is the only question. If you would not feel the horrible burden of time weighing on your shoulders and crushing you to the earth, be drunken continually. Drunken with what? With wine, with poetry, or with virtue, as you will. But be drunken. And if sometimes on the stairs of a palace, or on the green side of a ditch, or in the dreary solitude of your own room, you should awaken in the drunkenness be half or wholly slipped away from you. Ask of the wind, or of the wave, or of the star, or of the bird, or of the clock, or whatever flies, or sighs, or rocks, or sings, or speaks. Ask what hour it is, and the wind, wave, star, bird, clock will answer you. It is the hour to be drunken. Be drunken if you would not be martyred slaves of time. Be drunken continually with wine, with poetry, or with virtue, as you will. Charles Baudelaire, be drunk. Taking a shot. Sorry, James. James Chapman in Hitchcock and the Spy film puts Hitchcock... Puts... James Chapman. You're <laughs> accustomed to your bourbon. James Chapman in Hitchcock and the Spy Film puts Hitchcock's spy films into a larger context. Quote. Other recurring motifs of Hitchcock's spy films include the suave and outwardly respectable chief villain. The 39 Steps, Foreign Correspondent, Saboteur, Notorious North by Northwest. And the Suspense. <sighs> <sighs> <And the> <laughs> You're broken. I have broken me finally. And the Suspense Climax set in or around a famous landmark. The Albert Hall and the Man Who Knew Too Much. The Statue of Liberty. Liberty? Liber <laughs> the statue, the statue of liberty. I've grown accustomed to your face. I've grown accustomed to your bourbon. The Statue of Liberty, <laughs> the Albert Hall, and the man. <laughs> the Statue of Liberty and Saboteur. Mount Rushmore, North by North. Hey, that's this film. Good job, me. I found sources who relate to the content of the film at hand. You're welcome. Where am I? <laughs> I'm still in the quote. It is no coincidence that the key moments in the development of spy fiction have been during periods of ideological tension in global politics. In Britain, 
especially, spy fiction has been read as a narrative of the decline of British power. Author Michael Denning avers that the spy thriller narrates the crises and contradictions in ideologies of nation and empire and of class and gender. The work of John Buchan was undoubtedly an important influence on the development of the Hitchcockian thriller. Hitchcock acknowledged that Buchan was a strong influence a long time before I undertook the 39 steps, and some of it reflected in The Man Who Knew Too Much. What I find appealing in Buchan's work is his understatement of highly dramatic ideas. From Buchan, for example, comes the motif of the thin protection of civilization that some commentators have attributed to Hitchcock. John Buchan is best known for his iconic novel, The 39 Steps, frequently appearing in lists of the top 100 books of the 20th century. It is widely regarded as the starting point for espionage fiction, and yet the novel was written to pass the time while Buchan recovered from illness. The book's hero, Richard Honey, is on the run for most of the plot, and this fast-moving adventure story has influenced countless thrillers since its publication in 1915. Buchan, winner of some notable literary prizes as an undergraduate at Oxford University, managed to fill his life with a variety of work barrister, colonial administrator, publisher, director of intelligence, director of Reuters News Agency, member of parliament, and finally governor general of Canada is Lord Tweedsmoor. Why is his name Tweedsmoor? Somehow he found time to write more than 25 novels, a number of short story collections, several major biographies, a 24-volume history of World War I, that's impressive, and a host of other books, pamphlets, essays, and magazine articles. It was all in brackets, and it's so distracting, because brackets is like, who's he talking about? Back to the quote. Well, auteur critics naturally... Where's this accent? Stop it. While auteur critics naturally emphasize the similarities between, say, the 39 steps and North by Northwest, attributing those similarities to Hitchcock's authorship, at the same time there are also significant differences. Backtrack. There are also significant differences between the two films in terms of scale, and scoop, and scoop, and scoop, and scoop, which reflect the production contexts of the British film industry, the British film industry, the British film industry, specifically the Gaumont, is that French? Specifically, the Gaumont British British Corporation. <laughs> In the 1930s, and the U.S. film industry, specifically MGM, in the late 1950s, end quote. 
North by Northwest takes itself a little less seriously. In fact, I wonder whether in 1959, much of this drunken driving sequence and sequence sequence would play as funny in as much as it is also harrowing. Ba-dum-bum. We are on page 23 of the shooting script. Changes dating 8, 25, 58, scene 43 continued. The script has a police car. Two officers in front seat. The car is traveling along at a normal speed. Suddenly Thornhill's car comes dashing by. The officers react immediately. Start in pursuit. In the film, the moment is more, sp- more um, uh, comedic. We ended last minute on Glen Cove Police Car 29 parking at Park King Park Parked Parked at the side of the road. The driver is not inside the vehicle, but standing near it, his flashlight trained on something. Perhaps going on with the gate, we can see in the background if this chase has been filmed along Potrero Road. This turnoff might be a Rancho Potero. The officer in the passenger seat is superfluous. I don't know how to say that without singing. As Thornhill's Mercedes speeds by, the driver jumps into action. And it feels like the film was sped up for this passing rather than actually endanger this actor's life. The officer turns toward the car, then turns along with the passing to face forward. Then he turns to the driver, to woo, to woo, that only has one syllable, to the driver's side door opens, it gets in and drives his siren going. His car is out of frame, second nine, and we cut to an angle on the road from behind. Thornhill's car in the distance, the police car following. Despite the headlights, Thornhill's Mercedes disappears into the distant darkness, and we cut second 13 to Thornhill in the driver's seat. Oh, we've seen this before. So we skip scene 44, sort of. Scene 44 is interior limousine. Valerian and light see the police car, which is almost directly in front of them, take off after Thornhill. Valerian signals the light to slow down. Light does so and starts to make a U-turn. We will come back to that. Instead, Mercedes-Benz 45. Thornhill tries desperately to keep his eyes and focus his foot on the floorboard and his hand on and and his hands on the wheel. Horns blare. Unrealistically, I would say, but warningly, as the script says, as he comes perilous, perilous, perilously close to several head-on crashes. The script says, but that happened last minute. In his rear-view mirror, he sees the headlights of the police car following and does not realize that is no that it is no longer the limousine. Which is an interesting line from the script that does not really seem to be what is happening in the film. He does not seem to realize it at all that anyone is following him. In the police car, limousine, whatever. He's like, blah, 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 I'm driving, I'm drunk, whatever. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. But additionally, that one car might be mistaken for another in the script offers up a sort of irony for Thornhill, whose entire situation is built on mistaken identity. The headlights are coming closer, the script says, but Thornhill's eyes are barely open. His head lolls back, he blinks. 
straightens his head, blinks a few more times. He is realizing where he is, and maybe he has been in this situation. Not exactly, but be close. Before, drunk, a police siren behind. He blinks more. He tries to focus behind him. We can see another gate and a turnoff passed by on the left, and I'm wondering... Is this Portrait Road or is this Sutherland or some other road in the valley that didn't used to have houses next to it? And I can't identify because Google Maps doesn't work anymore. Because it's 1958 and I can't get it straight and whatever the fire release. Siren behind. He blinks some more, tries to focus behind him. We can see another gate and a turn off pass by on the left. Thornhill turns his attention from right to left and almost focuses, but not quite. He shakes his head. Then his eyes go drowsy again, and his head starts to lull. Then he's attentive again, and somewhat turns his head to the right, maybe trying to figure out if that siren is real, or is it in his head? A couple big blinks as he tries to focus again. The road curves as Thornhill's eyes close again. Second, 32, cut to hoodshot. An old man on a bicycle on a cross street heading from right to left. The Mercedes ornament like a fighter pilot's targeting radical moves left after him. I find my mind drifting because this guy on the bike reminds me of another man on a bike and in the mouth of madness. A boy at first, riding his bicycle baseball card clipped in the spokes for that extra bit of noise going the same direction as Linda is driving in her Cadillac Seville. John sleeps beside her in the passenger seat. She watches in the rearview mirror. The boy disappears into the red of her taillights into She starts to blink, just like Thornhill. But purely from tiredness, not drunkenness, then she... A spot something up ahead, slowly it comes into the light of the car's headlights, an old man dressed like a younger man. Riding in the opposite direction in a very similar bike, but then he's past. I saw a... Cow, sheep. Pig, what'd you say? Never mind, it was nothing. She puts on her glasses to see better and opens up a paper map and we cut to that old man on his bike again just before Linda is surprised by his reappearance too late. Puts it head on, he flips up and over the vehicle. She screams, she stops, turns, and drives back. One bicycle tire spins, no longer on the ground. The camera pans more slowly than Linda or even the just awakened John. The old man speaks. Camera rises with Linda's attention. She turns and that same old man is on an intact bicycle behind her. And he rides off again into the darkness. 
With the location lit the way it is here in North by Northwest, this intersection seems at first to be nowhere in particular. Okay. Thornhill has been driving along a rather rural route. He's supposed to be on Long Island, but he is somewhere in the valley northwest of Los Angeles. We will see buildings soon, but right now this might just be two roads in the middle of nowhere, passing in the night, yet here is this old man cycling away in darkness. To where? From where? And with no reflectors? Is this Roger O. Thornhill as an old man still headed nowhere with his life endangering himself one drink at a time, one night drive at a time, Never mind the spies trying to kill him. Never mind the police. Roger O. Thornhill is his own worst enemy. He works in advertising, works at lying for a living. But who is he? That empty space at the center of his name might just as well be the empty space at the center of his identity, the center of his soul. Mark Elliott suggests in Cary Grant, a biography, that George Kaplan just might be, quote, An externalized, elaborate fantasy, perhaps of Thornhill's most repressed desires for an idealized life of exciting adventure, of romance, of meaning. End quote. Thornhill is, effectively, an empty suit. Barbara Strauman, Figurations of Exile in Hitchcock and Nabokov. Quote. As Thornhill's appearance at the beginning of the film suggests, he moves in the social symbolic, but in so doing does not hold a position and is unable to assume one. Instead, he engages in what one might call a narcissistic economy, a play of signs which is nourished by the language of his profession. The very first scene of the film aligns him with the world of advertisement and consumerist culture in which the public image is everything. His talk and dictation in the presence of his secretary, Maggie, highlight that as an advertising man, he deals both in and with mythical signs. The present he has Maggie send to his lover suggests a wholesale commodification of all relations. The box of candy is individually wrapped in gold paper, he thinks, will make her think she's eating money. A moment later, after tricking a man out of his cab with the claim that I have a very sick woman here, He points to his smart manipulation of the words and appearances when he explains to his secretary that in the world of advertisement, there is no such thing as a lie. There is only expedient exaggeration. Although he treats the advertising slogans he produces as interchangeable, he is immersed in the myths of his own profession. The opening of the film characterizes him as successful with respect to his manipulation of signs. In the course of the narrative, however, it becomes clear There's one area in which he does not operate as an interpolated subject, namely the register of symbolic difference. Thornhill's trouble with the symbolic law is primarily played out by his inability to enter into a mature sexual relation. Not only has he already been married and divorced twice, the beginning of the film foregrounds the blockage of the Oedipal route by his infantile dependence on his dominant mother, One of his tasks for his secretary in the first scene is to call his mother as soon as she is back at the office, and when he is in trouble at the police station after the spies have made him drunk and set him out in a stolen car, he calls mother instead of the lawyer he would actually need. The dominant role of the mother is already implied by the message he asks his secretary to deliver to her, namely that when they meet for dinner he will have two drinks so she needn't bother to sniff my breath like a bloodhound. Similarly, When after his abduction, detectives check up on his statement, Mrs. Thornhill mocks and exposes her son as a preposterous 
storyteller. End quote. The reticle almost reaches its target. Then second 34. We're on Thornhill again as he notices and hits the brakes. The police car gets closer. The lights of another car visible farther back. From the script, suddenly, almost too late, he sees ahead of him an elderly gentleman on a bicycle emerge from a side row. He slams on the brakes, and the car comes to a screaming, wobbling, stop. Second 35, their bicyclist, oblivious, continues across. Second 37, side angle, 46. And the location is wrong. Or at least the lighting has changed. Thornhill's car has stopped near a street lamp. There are trees on the block to the car's right, which was empty in the previous shots. But also, there are houses visible on the side street, which was nothing but darkness before. The police car comes from the right of frame. Too fast, then we're close on the two cars. The rear of the Mercedes, the front end of the police car, as it hits. The police car crumples a bit. Its front bumper drops. This was reportedly one of the first film jobs of famed car customizer George Barris, making aluminum components for these cars to crumple just right. One of his most famous cars, by the way, was the Batmobile from the 1960s TV series, built into a Lincoln Futura concept car in which he sold at auction in 2013 for $4.6 million. As Thornhill's car comes to a final jerking halt, the script says, the police car with the screaming brakes hits Thornhill's rear, there is a crunching sound as the bonnet of the police car crumples like tin. By second 38, we are already wide again as the third car approaches the Ford Super Deluxe. Then close for that hit, second 39, there's a momentary silence and then the sudden scream of more brakes and the third car smashes into the back of the police car, giving it a crumpled rear as well. And wide again, second 40 as everything settles. And now we get scene 44 with the Cadillac coming to a stop, lit from above, though there is no visible street lamp, and another car is heading away in the distance, though Thornhill has not recently passed one. Frederick Jameson describes it aptly in Spatial Systems in North by Northwest. Quote, when Grant's car finally comes to a halt within police legality, the assassin's vehicle, which has been following him at a prudent distance, executes a slow and meaningful U-turn, renunciation, finality, withdrawal. This filmed trajectory of an inanimate object is more expressive than most human gestures. It is indeed itself a gesture of a heightened but constructed type. End quote. The Cadillac stops, second 43. We are on Valerian and Light inside, second 44. Then second 45, we are on the three stopped cars again. Thornhill looks behind to see what all the fuss is about. The script says the two police, after forcing a door open, emerge, glowering. But we are too wide to see if they are glowering. The script also tells us at the same time, the third driver is seen getting out of his car, somewhat bewildered and starting forward, but he does not get out. The policemen close their doors and approach Thornhill. Second 50, we are back on the Cadillac, already backing itself into a three-point turn off the side of the road to the right, then forward and away, and we cut back to the three cars, second 53, as the officers near Thornhill, we dissolve to 47, cut, interior Glen Cove Police Station, night 48, the script describes the scene. 
a Lieutenant Hagerman is behind the desk, whose right is a radio phone transmitter receiver over which we hear the faint communications of cruising police cars and their patrol stations. A commotion is heard outside, and then one of the police car officers, a gentleman known as Sergeant Klinger, escorts a wobbly Thornhill into the building. In the film, two men bring Thornhill in, Klinger on the left, Wagoner on the right, but they don't even reach the counter, as time runs out for this minute. I've been your host for Minute 18, Professor Robert E.G. Black. If you'd like to hear more from me, check out Annihilation Minute, a podcast with a reading list and several layers of story retelling. You can find the Hitchcock Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at the main site HitchcockMinute.com. Find us on Facebook at The Man on Washington's Nose or on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. Let's join us again next time on the Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.